2: Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
3: Hello and welcome to episode number 598 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell and my guest this week is Mimi Matthews. Mimi is back to talk about her latest novel, The Lily of Ludgate Hill, which is the third book in her Bells of London series. Y'all, this book has pining. So much pining. I love pining. But this is also a book about grief. Characters are pining for what was as much as other characters are pining for what could be. So we are going to talk about grief and loss and hope and adapting to massive upheaval and about the Gilded Age television show. So if you've been watching that, I would love to hear from you. I do want to make it clear we are talking about grief and disordered eating. We talk about diet culture in the 90s and the 2000s. And we also talk about the death of Mimi's father, which inspired parts of Lily. I want to say a very big hello and thank you to the Patreon community, and I have a compliment this week to Barbara J. There is a poem in every language that references how warm, hilarious, and extremely clever you are, and there's even one that talks about your really great taste in all forms of baked goods. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge of any amount, thank you. The Patreon community keeps me going. Make sure that every episode has a transcript hand compiled by a garlic knitter. Hi, garlic knitter. And you're keeping me going. So thank you very, very much for that. We also have a lot of nifty benefits for the Patreon, including bonus episodes, a truly warm and welcoming discord community, except when we talk about how cold it is. It's not so warm there, but we are warm and we would love to have you join us you can go to patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at $1 a month and it would be lovely to have you join us. If you like finding out about romances on sale and about romance new releases, you will want to listen to this spot real quick. Support for this episode comes from Red Feather Romance, your romance BFF. I love that tagline. Red Feather Romance gives readers a personalized and affordable selection of romance ebooks spanning all the romance subgenres delivered to your email inbox every day. Red Feather Romance looks through hundreds of romance eBooks a week to find and deliver the best new releases and hidden gems. You will get an email every day with romance eBooks picked just for you. They will always have your favorite genre, your favorite trope, or your favorite author, and the service is and always will be free of charge. You know the type of romances you like to read, while well, you can let Red Feather Romance help you find your next one can't decide what to read next well red feather romance is here to help with unlimited happily ever afters delivered to your inbox you like friends to lovers or enemies to lovers or friends to enemies to lovers love triangles secret billionaires no matter your favorite trope they have got you covered you can get hand-picked romance ebook recommendations every morning and you will never be lost again Sign up for the Red Feather Romance newsletter for free today at redfeatherromance.com slash SBTB to start receiving free and discounted romance ebooks that are sure to keep you up all night long. That's redfeatherromance.com slash SBTB. The link will also be in the show notes and on the entry at Smart Bitches, but you can go there right now, redfeatherromance.com slash SBTB. Visit Red Feather Romance, your romance, BFF. All right, are you ready? Let's do this podcast episode. Also, I apologize for my voice. I have had the worst cold. It was so bad. I took like 19 COVID tests because I was convinced that I had COVID again. No, I just had a bad cold, which is something I haven't experienced since like 2020. So apologies for my voice in this intro and outro. On with the podcast.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Mimi Matthews. I write historical romance. Um, it's set mostly in the Victorian era. I also write nonfiction history books for Pen and Sword, a publisher in England, and I write articles on all aspects of 19th century history. Basically, if it's about the 19th century, I'm commenting on it somewhere in some in some publication.
3: Which is really interesting because if you think about it, the, um, the extremely rigid moral code and expectations of behavior you can see some of that showing up now that has a lot in common with the expectations of social performance of of like devotion oh my, you can see all gosh. that coming up now and it's like wait no we we did this we, we we've done this rules. let's yeah. do something else
2: <laughs> yeah it, it's it's strange isn't it it's strange the way so- the the things that happen in society sort of go through these ebbs and flows and you can see things repeating themselves, yes. and if you're a student of history, you know if you're really paying attention, sometimes it's very disappointing because you're like, oh, I thought we all hashed this out, didn't
0: we do this a while
2: ago? Yeah, haven't we all been through this? Or it, it it just eventually feels like you're watching the same series get remade over and over again with these little differences, but it it feels a little bit, yeah, like you've been here before.
3: Yep. Well, I want to talk to you very much about the Lily of Ludgate Hill. Congratulations on your new Thank book. you so much. Now, I have, I have, first of all, one thing that I love is when I'm reading a book and I kind of get the sense, I think the author's like having a really good time with these characters. Like <laughs> the author really likes these people. Now, I read the author's note. So I know that this book was not written during a period of great personal fun, but it no. does seem like writing about this group of characters that you're having a real good time. Am I right about that? I I really have
2: enjoyed the heck out of writing The Bells of London because historical romance, especially this era, this particular decade of the Victorian era, the 1860s, is my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, there's the different romances and with different types of, of men. It's not all no shade to Dukes. I love a good Duke romance, but it's not, it's men in different spheres of life, you yeah. know, which is very interesting to me. Um, and it's also friendships, horses, fashion. I mean, I love being in that world, you know, the gowns, oh, yeah. the the riding, the different equestrian aids, you know, with the nods to dressage. Um, it's It's been so much fun to be able to do this. I'm
3: sad that it's coming to me. Yeah, I can tell. I also love how a lot of them ride horses that are like absolutely absurd for their height and weight. And yet they're riding like these mega stallions. And they're like, Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, it's very interesting. So like for context, I'm not very tall. I'm just like five, three and a half. And my uh, dressage horse, Centaio, was 16'2". So his withers came to my head. Yeah. So I rode a big horse. Yeah. And... I love that sense you get, if you have a good partnership with them, not if you're riding a big horse that's disobedient and out of control, that is not good. That's not fun. But when you go back and you look at, at some of the history books about equestrianism for women, you know, specifically mm-hmm. for women, they describe the type of horse women should ride in, in a way that women are almost infantilized, you know, like nothing over 15 hands to Two inches. So nothing over 15, two. And, you know, these gentle creatures. And I felt like for my bells, the big horses um, and not even to size, but temperaments, the different temperaments they have are an expression of their power, the women's power. Yeah. Um, In an era when, you know, there were very limited avenues for them to, ex- to them to acceptably express that level of strength and power and the horses really are um representative of that for each of them in their way.
3: And isn't that also something that is still happening that we infantilize women and try to compress them into very limited spheres when it's like no, you can ride a big horse?
2: Yeah, you yeah, I don't know I don't know really the purpose of that except for just some deeply ingrained Sexism. social traditions that have just yeah, stuck around forever that um something in you know the human brain and not every human brain wants to categorize everybody and put them in these little boxes yeah. and becomes very distressed if somebody exceeds the <laughs> exceeds the walls of that box like oh but yeah it was definitely like in the Victorian era for women yeah. and um, very difficult for them to express themselves so but they still did express themselves oh, but yes. a lot of times in just very unique ways oh, yes. you know within within the um, with the tools they had at their disposal
3: have you thought about marketing your books as historical romances for horse girls?
2: Yes. I, you know, I thought belatedly after um, the, everything had already, you know, been set in motion. I was like, oh, we should use the tagline ride or die. Yeah. Right? we ride or die friends.
3: Well, all you have to do is convince Berkeley to release an omnibus edition and then that can be the ride or die collection.
2: The horse girl manual. Yeah. Yeah. The ride or die collection. I think it would be so great. (laughs) You know what? I saw um, somebody saying once about about horse girls and they're like, oh, those girls who make horses, their whole personality. But I think it's people who are not familiar with the sort of horse girl life and don't realize that it's more than just like a hobby or something like you just ride your horse. I mean, it is a it's a sport. It's really a lifestyle and it takes up a ton of your time. certainly takes up a ton of your money when you're (laughs) young, a ton of your parents' money. I think that horses are really, really good for girls when they're growing up. Uh, And again, that sense of power and just being with a creature larger than you and teaches you patience and a certain humbleness.
3: It is intense. And speaking of the horse girls, now I know from having read Belle of, Belle of Belgrave Square that that was clearly inspired by Beauty and the Beast. And you mentioned that there's different heroes and different different characters that they have this core friendship but each book has very different themes. What were some of your inspirations and influences for Lily?
2: For Lily I feel like it, it didn't have it didn't draw as much directly from uh, for Belle it was definitely a lot of Victorian sensation novels mm-hmm. and uh, Beauty and the Beast or Wilkie Collins, the woman in white and Lady Audley's secret, things like that. But um, for Lily, I didn't have as much direct inspiration, but I can certainly, I certainly had feelings that I, were generated from stories like Jane Austen's persuasion. Yes. And I noticed um, that far one. From, yeah, far from the madding crowd yep. by um, Thomas Hardy, you know, just the idea of, this sort of strong, solid, steadfast hero who is pining for this heroine or waiting, you know, not even so much pining, but waiting and there to be of service. I especially think of that with Gabriel Oak in Far From the Madding Crowd, you know. He he says at one point to um, Bathsheba, the heroine, I'll do one, I'm going to quote this really badly, but I'll do one thing in life and one thing certain and that is love you and long for you and keep wanting you until I die. And I think that's one of the most romantic lines I know. Austin Roses, that does roses, has a actually has a rose called Gabriel Oak. <laughs> that's one of their most beautiful roses. They name them after they name different roses after different characters, but they have like they're one of those mo- most popular roses is the Gabriel Oak Rose. At any rate, I'm a big Gabriel Oak fan, but I liked the idea of that and also growth, um, meeting someone when you're young and it's not necessarily a soulmate. Or this is my one true love, or anything like that. But meeting somebody who you're meant for, but you meet them a little bit too soon, you're immature. Yes. Um, the timing's not right. No. And for Anne and Hart, it was definitely really about that journey. And also, layered into that is Anne taking on this role. Anne has a very, very strong mother, a lot in the model of Queen Victoria, a very strong mother. The destabilizing effect for Anne of seeing a mother that's who is that much a pillar of strength brought low by grief. yeah. And what that does after losing your other parent to see that your remaining parent is has has cracked like that mm-hmm. and children becoming the caregiver. This isn't a direct thing that's happened to me in my life, but it to an extent it has. I really feel that now of after losing my dad, um, you know, because my mom is very strong. Um, woman very strong mother and seeing that and you really feel like the ground underneath you is is not stable anymore a a romance with heart you know what what that can look like and what kind of maturity there is in in adapting to all that change um so it was all those things I was sort of thinking about in my head um at the same time as I was as I was writing it um but yeah
3: One thing I really liked about both stories is that in Belle of Belgrave Square and Lily of Ludgate Hill, both Belle and and Anne, they are trying to move on from their families to form a family of their own. Yes. And they want to leave their families because they are grown and they would like to have their own lives. But, of course, there are very many reasons why they can't just be like, well, mom and dad got an apartment moving out gotta go gotta yeah. go it's been great but i'm gonna take my stuff and i'm gonna move out i'm gonna live on exactly. my own like and that's not, not happening that is yeah. not happening and with bell of belgrave square her parents were just dreadful like they were just awful and wanted her to be their
2: caregiver, caregiver. in a way and so her wanting to escape you know had a little bit more urgency to it in the sense that they were making some bad health decisions on her behalf.
3: Yes, they were making really some really dreadful oh, decisions intense. on her behalf. Yeah,
2: yeah, and based truly in Victorian history. It yes, so overdramatic and melodramatic, and I wanted it to have that feel a little bit because I really wanted to to have that feeling of a Victorian sensation novel. But that stuff was really happening. Yeah. Now,
3: I don't like to do spoilers for books that people who probably are listening have not read yet. But to me, it seemed like one of the major themes in this book was pining, but lots yes. of different kinds of pining. And I have to say, on a very selfish level, thank you. I love pining. It is probably my favorite romance motif because it is all of this internal emotional tension of yes. really being into somebody, but choosing not to act on it for capital R reasons. And sometimes those reasons are. External and sometimes they are internal, and when it's really right. good, they are both. But I love pining. I love that I love a good piney hero. Give me a nice balsam duke. I'm a big fan. I love pining. <laughs> so, first of all, on behalf of me, thank you for the pining. Oh, great. <laughs> but one of the things that I realized as I was reading this. There's lots of different pining in among the characters in this book. There's pining for the future and the possibility of a romance and pining for a future where you can earn your own money or make decisions about your own finances and not have to rely on an inheritance and pining for independence, both financial and personal. And also pining for the past, you know, pining for someone who has died and a life that you thought you were going to have that you can't let go of not having. So the future pining and the past pining made such an interesting contrast for me because they're both like completely normal human things to do. But if you're pining for the past and you can't move on, You get stuck stuck.
2: There was so much of the Victorian era in this period that was like that, stuck. Yeah. Sort of, I guess they would say preserved in aspic, where it's just set. Yes. We're doing the same things all the time. We have a queen in perpetual mourning. So I definitely did want to convey that and what it takes to become unstuck. Yeah. And I and some of that models for me too, that sense of when there is Enormous change, you know, mm-hmm. in the world, in your life, mm-hmm. a loss, you know, something like losing a parent, especially. Part of the thing that sticks you is this sorrow, this this depression, or this sorrow, and you're so in it that sometimes, you know, all you have is the pining because you can't take the action, can't move past it, and part of that is you're not. It takes a while to be ready to move past it. Well, Anne's had a lot of years. Um, and she's also sort of with heart, you know, she she doesn't really trust him. And I know for some people it would be like, well, he was so good in, in the present of the story. Why didn't she just forgive him? But when somebody lets you down during the crisis of your life, um, again, no spoilers, but just in the past, when something happens with somebody at a pivotal point, It is very hard. (laughs) You have to see visible, tangible proof that they have changed to trust them again, especially if in order to to go forward in that direction, it means, you know, you feel you might be abandoning somebody else who you
1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: Oh, a well, loyalty to, yeah. or you, who who has been your sort of companion on this road as you're going through. But yeah, I felt like definitely um, the pining was a lot for all of those things. You know, the other part of them being stuck is in this world, in Mayfair, I think it mentions in the story. I say it mentions like I'm not the one who wrote it. <laughs>
3: Some narrative, <laughs> some random. <laughs> it was my. Written, book. I think it says that <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, that
2: part of being stuck is being in this sort of rarefied air of Mayfair. Yeah, in this part of London. Yeah, it's not real life. No, you know, it's not real life. What was in the city when they go to Ludgate Hill? There is a diversity of class. There's a diversity of race. There is activity and energy and it's like suddenly coming back to life yeah but part of part of being stuck was being stuck um in that little community um which had not moved on with the time
3: no so yeah it's one of my favorite scenes is when you know Anne is like just going shopping
2: Mine too. You know what? They, I had a visceral feeling when I wrote that. So I, so I went to school. Um, so I live in the Bay Area, but I live in like a suburb yeah. where you have to drive a few miles to get m- most people in the Bay Area live that way. Like, and then yeah. you take the BART into the city. But I went to um, undergrad in Oakland and mm-hmm. I went to law school in San Francisco. And for the first year, you know, you BART into the city and there's this literal feeling the BART is un- under And when you're going up the escalator into the city, you can feel the energy change. And I think it's this way in every big city where as you're coming up from underground, the air is just crackling. I mean, there's so many people and everybody is so busy with what they want to do. And there's so many different kinds of people. And that energy is intoxicating. And I I wanted Anne to feel that. At coming from Mayfair where it's quiet and the rules and the restrictions and the suffocation, I wanted her to feel like this is the beating heart of this city and you are waking up and this is what real life is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And that she's sort of buoyed from shop to shop off that feeling. Oh, and also she gets to eat some sugar. So always important.
3: That hear. was the other right. thing. That was the other thing. Cause I read, um, I've read a lot of Reese Bowen's Royal Spiness books. Have you ever read oh, these?
2: Yeah. I haven't, but I'm familiar, I'm familiar with
3: So with one them. of the conceits of this book is that um the heroine is like, I don't know, 36th, 37th in line for the throne under Victoria, but she's a a lady and her brother has inherited and they have this drafty terrible home and her brother's sister his her brother's wife her sister-in-law wants to manage her and like control her and she's really not interested and so eventually she ends up being summoned to the palace when she's in London by the queen because the queen wants her to investigate some problem that she can't do officially it's all very back channel but one of the things that i is so memorable to me is that she's having tea with the queen And she's starving. She has no money. She might be titled, but she's got buckus. And you're not allowed to eat anything that the queen doesn't eat. And the queen is eating brown bread. And so she's looking at this giant tier of food and she's like, but I can't eat any of it because the queen is having brown bread. So that's what I'm having. And I'm like,
2: "Mm, oh, my God,
3: that sucks. And I was looking at Anne. Anne is restricted in what she eats by her mother's expectations of austerity. And, you know, your food must be as lacking in joy as my life right now.
2: Well, her mom is from a different era. And her mom, I have a little bit more sympathy for her mom. She's taken such rigid control of the the only thing she can. Yes. And one of those things is her body.
3: Yes. And And it's it's sort of like... Very common start to um, eating disorders in any era.
2: Yes, I've experienced this myself uh, when I was young. During times of intense stress, I would be like logging. This is a very 1990s kid thing, right? (laughs) You know, all this obsession with food and calorie counting. It was the most toxic diet culture in the 90s when I came of age.
3: Yes. Oh, my God. The 90s and then the 2000s where you had to have a specialty wax to wear the The jeans because the rise was this tall. I
2: wore those jeans, Sarah. And I remember just like... The diets I would be on, always, literally always on a diet. Starving,
3: starving. And and don't eat. Have a glass of water.
2: I have a box of old journals in the attic. Oh, and I was thinking gosh. of shredding them because I thought to myself on one hand, oh, this will be great for the kids when my my niece, when she grows up. And I thought, nope. no, it's all just today I looked fat. Today, you know, I weighed this. It was a very toxic time. Mm-hmm. Looking back at some of the images too on magazines of that time, if you ever look back and you just think this was so patently unhealthy. Yeah. Not, are you healthy? Are you strong? Are you eating when you're hungry? But deprivation, Yeah, you know, make yourself small. I think as a woman today, looking back, that's what I think it was make yourself
3: small and frail. It was like the the blowback to the seventies and eighties advancement of women being in career places where you could go into a business and you would see women in the workplace and you would see women moving into in the power. executive spaces, the big
2: shoulder pads, yes. women
3: looking powerful. Yeah, but you had to conform to this deeply narrow definition of yeah. It, was a, of it was a way of controlling
2: women. Absolutely, it is controlling women
3: and teaching us but. to control ourselves. And when you apply yeah. that to. To grief. like I can't control anything that is happening to me right now, but I can control this.
2: I think on, uh, you know, on one hand, I see that that's a way of getting through it. Mm-hmm. Um, to micromanage parts of your life. When my dad died, my God, I mean, it was literally like in Lily. I have to be honest. So he had battled many health things as he got older. He was mm-hmm. my stepdad, but I call him my dad. He was a dad to me in every way. And they told us he was he was in hospice at home and they told us he had two weeks and we were devastated to think he only had two weeks. And the next day he died. Oh no. We had in our heads that we had two weeks and we were still trying to wrap our heads around that.
3: And And the next morning, 24 hours,
2: he was gone. And after that, the sense of being so lost and we had to, you know, and plus, you know, figuring everything out, you know, because my dad my dad was like our um bookkeeper. <laughs> so I would be like every day we're just going to do one hard thing, yeah, and two not so difficult things and we're going to incrementally get through these things and then every day we're going to walk on this treadmill cuz we have to do something yes. to get some of this emotion out, to yes. get some of this anguish out. But I think you have to micromanage in the beginning, but Anne's mom has It's all she's doing, you know what I mean? And which is sort of understandable in an era when a lot of your identity came from your husband, her position
3: came from her husband, the bulk of her wealth. She also had a lot of social power and a lot of social control. Like she was a very powerful woman in society and she took all of that social power and turned it on herself and Anne.
2: Yeah. I felt like Anne was really strong in this way. Um, Was she right to stay so long? Should she have done things differently? Maybe. Who can say? But the dynamic, as it appeared to everybody else, was not what the actual relationship dynamic was between them. That Anne had a lot more power than was visible to the outside world. Just in the sense that she had taken on the role of a caregiver for a parent.
3: Yeah. And she did so much to try to help her mom. They became in what I think would be in contemporary parlance, extremely codependent on each other. Oh,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. And so not the most healthy thing, especially when it goes on past the initial period of mourning, which at that time would have been for a widow two
3: years. Which is astonishing if you think about it. Like you have to cut yourself off. You have to like not go out into society when really part of what might make you feel better is to be around people. To be among
2: people. Yes, for healing, definitely. One thing I did like, and this was actually a reader who pointed this out to me being in mourning was good in in a way because it was a signal to people around you, strangers, be gentle with me. Yes. I've had a loss. And I thought, gosh, I. I love that because one of the things with when you're in the direct aftermath of a loss and you have to go back out in the world, you literally feel like you have no skin. Losing my dad at Christmas, um, December 23rd of this year will be two years. But I was out and everybody was asking, how was your Christmas? Just normal. You know what I mean? And they had no idea. No idea. And it was very hard. But I like the idea that there was some symbol to show people I have lost somebody Mm -hmm. and please be gentle with me. Yeah. You know, I'm not ready yet.
3: And it's interesting to look at Victoria doing this for so long. And then, you know, Anne's mother doing this for for so long. Instead of actually processing and moving through it, you just stay you stay stuck in that
2: spot. But yeah, change is is so scary. And sometimes I think when people um, are that frightened, they are just like, I'm just going to be still. Or I'm going to be still and I'm going to look backward to a better time and yeah. <laughs> try and pull everyone backward with me. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a very, a very human feeling.
3: It really is. And it's hard.
2: Yeah, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. And I think part of that was back then about maintaining power. Yes. Because you didn't want upward class mobility. You didn't want these hardworking, you know, City folk who running mills like Mr. Thornton in North and South, Mm -hmm. you know, becoming up on a level with other people.
3: Now, I want to ask you I always ask um, about books, especially if you have books that you recommend that have a lot of pining in them. For example, North and South has some mad (laughs) pining, mad, mad pining. But I also wanted to ask, what was your father's name? And do you want to share like one of your favorite memories of him?
2: His name was Eugene. And I'll tell you, he was the most positive man. So my mom and I are more cynical, always like worst case scenario. Yeah, I'm like that. You know? <laughs> um, but he was so positive. And so I'll tell you a story. of uh, One time I came over to their house and we were making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and the bread in the fridge didn't have enough slices. And I says uh, to my dad, I said, there are only in pieces left. And he said, why don't we call them beginnings? <laughs> 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 that sums him up so perfectly. He was so positive and like the most genuinely good person, a wonderful, wonderful man. I miss him so much, Sarah. It's it's been really rough, but yeah.
3: Do you think writing Lily of Ludgate Hill helped a little bit?
2: I think it did. um, Sometimes I wonder if the loss has changed me so much that it's changed the way I write going forward. And of course, fears of wondering, did it sort of break my ability to write well or something? Um, you know, just scared, uh, mm-hmm. like anybody, very human, just scared of the future. Um, but I'm glad I had it to work on because I had a deadline after you passed away, and I had to work every day. Yeah, and I had to be in this world and. You know, the fun parts, the horses, the fashion, all of that, I really think it saved me because um, I have a personality, you know, more prone to depression. And the grieving process, I think, would have just totally sucked me under if I did not have this book to get me through it. But yeah, working through the book and seeing them come out the other side of it, Hart and Anne, and all of them come out, gave me a sense of, of hope. So, what books do you want to tell people about? Some I get, some books I get sent to me super early, so some of these might not be available yet. I read *The Stranger I Wed* by Harper St. George, which is Gilded Age marriage of convenience. And if you're watching Gilded Age on yes. HBO, which ha- is like so fascinating, it's almost just like
3: Gilded Age, Downton
2: Abbey, basically. I mean, it has the same vibe. I feel somebody um, I
3: know. um, I don't, God, who said it, but it, I, I cannot remember who said this, but the Gilded Age television show is like the real Housewives of 1896.
2: Oh my gosh, it is. It is. <laughs> and the way it does little snippets of everybody, there's no yes. deep dives in anyone's story to the extent that I get a little frustrated because I'm like, look, what is this? Just a recap of everybody's story? I need to go deep.
3: Yes. It's the to camera uh, part of the Housewives of where they talk about how they feel when they were feeling about things. It's like the Real Housewives exactly of it. 1896. And you know, like with the gorgeous gowns and the beautiful
2: interiors, when the costumes are that good, yes. I will watch it. But there's a storyline in it with a journalist. Her mm-hmm. name's Peggy. And she's African-American. Her dad's a preacher. There's a storyline this season about integrating schools and some of the the Black schools that were going to get shut down, which made me revisit a really great series called Home to Mitford by Piper Hugely and oh, I don't know if the myth. Yes, yes. 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 Um and I had read the first one in that. I'm trying to think is it The Lawyer's Luck or The Preacher's Promise? But I had read the first one in that a while ago and loved it. It was really really good. And but it it made me think of that. Now it's in like the 1840s mm-hmm. and so it's it's not gilded age. But I, it just made me think of that same thing. So I think people who are liking that storyline a lot on Gilded Age definitely visit Piper Hughley's books because she does it so well. And she has such a great sense of the history. There's so much authenticity, but it's just sweet and and beautiful love stories. Yeah, um, yeah I think those are really great. The other thing, well, this isn't a romance, but I'm starting Yellowface, which I'm a little bit nervous about. <laughs> I'm also late to the party. Everybody else has already read it. But I'm sort of a little hesitant just because it's about the publishing industry. Yeah. Even though I I guess I'm in the publishing industry to an extent as a writer, I always am on the periphery because I don't want to know too much about how the sausage is made. No. And anytime there's drama, I just think to myself, I don't... Look, my life is fraught enough, <laughs> my personal <laughs> life, <laughs> so I just don't need it. I love a story with an unreliable narrator. That's like a hook for me. The other thing that I read recently was, um, well, two things. Another romance that's not coming till May, so it's a ways away, by Virginia Heath, called All's Fair in Love and War, which is a start to a new series she's doing, which was like fun, just pure fun. And then I read a, a a new series. Actually, you know what? I don't know if it's even the beginning of a new series by Anna Lee Huber, and it's called Sisters of Fortune, and it's a based on these real life sisters who sailed on the Titanic the tension was like it was intense <laughs> it was really intense and all the different stories of the people on the ship but yeah it it's something that i thought was just spectacular my gosh humans are resilient there's really? so much <laughs> yes. so much of this history you just think god how did we get through these things how did people get through
3: yeah somehow yeah well i think that one of the reasons is that there are enough people who are pining for happiness and want to make that happen as opposed to wanting control or wanting to go back in time or wanting to reclaim power that they feel they used to have some people are just really sort of
2: this yearning yes yearning yearning for their happily ever after yeah yearning for some the next wonderful thing you know
3: that's very true where can people find you if you wish to be found?
2: Well, my author website, mimimatthews.com, uh, has links to um my face author Facebook page and Instagram. Um, I'm also on Twitter. I refuse to call it anything but Twitter.
3: Thank you so much for doing this, uh, especially when you're not feeling well. I oh, really thank you appreciate so much for it. Having
2: me. I always love talking to you.
3: Oh, anytime. It's really lovely to catch up with you. And thank you for sharing your father with us. Oh, thank you for listening, and thank you so much for reading,
2: Lily, and I hope that readers will love Hart and Anne's love story.
3: I think they will, especially when I tell them, there's pining. There. So
2: much pining. Mad
3: pining. <laughs> this whole book is piney fresh, like that little tree you used to put in the car.
2: <laughs> exactly. That should that should be the series symbol yeah. on the front of this book. A little
3: tree in the mirror. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you, as always, to Mimi Matthews for hanging out with me and talking all about her father and her book and her other book and all the pining. I love the pining. I love pining so much. I will have links to all of the books that we talked about as well. And I have a picture of the Gabriel Oak Rose, which is truly gorgeous, like absurdly beautiful. And all of that is in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast under episode number 598. As always, I end with a terrible joke. And this joke is from Verity. Hi, Verity. What is yellow and highly dangerous? What is yellow and highly dangerous? Shark infested custard. (laughs) So silly. I love it. Thank you, Verity. (laughs) On behalf of everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend and we will see you back here next week. In the ongoing parade of mayhem that is this show. I'm a little silly. There's cold medicine and I've had some. (laughs) Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts. Shark infested custard.